Lord, this is a, a tough topic that we're talking about this morning, your wrath. And many would say, well, why would we, why do we talk about that, Lord? This is my meager attempts to give balance to the scripture. And so we need desperately your Holy Spirit, not just for the words spoken, but also for the way in which they are received by those on live stream, which is the majority of our family now, and those who are here in the middle of August, Lord, we, we need your counsel, your wisdom, your guidance. We want an appropriate view of you, and we know that the authority in our lives are not the pastors at Church of the Red Door, although we play a, a, a minor role in terms of a sub-shepherd, but you're the ultimate shepherd, but Lord, uh, we do bow to the authority of Scripture so, Father, we need your voice and your Holy Spirit to walk us through the Scripture to give us a complete view of who you are and who we're dealing with. And so, Lord, that is a necessary thing uh, going forward this morning if we're going to have, this is going to have any impact as we continue this series on the wrath of God. In Jesus' name, amen. I noticed that many of you did not come back from last week after the wrath of God and found out that we're going to talk about it again. But let me again say, I made a statement last week, and I want to, again, try to support it. The deeper you understand the necessary and immutable aspects of God's wrath, necessary, the more you're going to appreciate the cross, the more, in fact, you're going to fall in love with Jesus. You know, Jesus is kind of, in some people's way, we talk a lot about it in our culture today, we talk about God. You'll hear people, and people get very excited about this kind of nuanced uh, introduction about, well, I thank God for this, or, you know, I'm, I'm appreciative of God, and that may or may not revolve around the cross. As we looked at in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 last week, Paul said, I've, I've determined to know nothing among you, to not preacher, anything. I want to know this exclusively, the cross of Jesus and him crucified. And that's important to understand. Some people say, well, we know about the cross. We, we know that Jesus died for our sins and, and all that. But we don't, I think when we don't dive deeply into the reason and the purpose and the necessity of the cross, then number one, we fail to understand the holiness of our God. And number two, we fail to understand the depth of love that both he and Jesus had for us in their joint movement towards the cross. Let me tell you something. And I know it's often hard to really comprehend how could a father send his son to the cross to be masochistically uh, slaughtered in front. In fact, you say, well, those are too strong words. Well, Isaiah, 700 years before the time of Jesus, had talked about like a lamb to the slaughter. And Jesus was the lamb, and we've talked about it many times in Revelation. It says Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth. It was always the plan, even before creation was spoken into existence, because God is not subject to time and space, that the necessity of the cross was evident in God's mind and part of the plan before he even spoke humanity into existence and all the creation. So when we look at this, I think it's important that we see that there is a duality here, as I alluded to last week. This is all in the context of David, and I think it's important because before, and we're going to conclude David's life either next week or the following week. Uh, actually, Paul will be preaching on the 26th, but we're going to conclude the life of David, but there's no way to conclude his life without almost, it seems like it in some ways goes out in a whimper. 
Here's the guy that started with such great promise. I mean, David and Goliath, and he was just a, a ruddy, small kid that is, you know, not impressive relative to his brothers. He was out tending the sheep, and here he was, and then he, he just seems to explode onto the scene. And David and Goliath, and he becomes a hero, and the whole nation begins to lift him up. David, who killed the ten thousands, and but Saul just the thousands. In fact, they began to put him in a position above Saul, which produced a lot of ire in Saul as we saw before Saul's death. What do we do with David's end of his life? And I think contextually it's important that we understand truly the wrath of God. What does the Bible say about the wrath of God? What does it say? Well, it says, number one, wrath emanates, comes from the very character of who God is. You mean he's a wrathful God? He tells us not to be wrathful, and he's wrathful. It is a necessary facet of his character. Why? Because he is so holy. He cannot, as we saw last week, he cannot even be in the presence of fallen humanity. No man can look upon the face of God and live. Those are strong words, and we're going to look at a few places this morning where people kind of generally came in just kind of close proximity to God and their reaction to that. If you can understand the depths of God's holiness, you will also then couple that with the depths of His love. These things seem to be mutually exclusive, don't they? I mean, it's either God's wrath or God's love, but it can't be, the, it can't be both, and yet both are perfectly realized in God's character and his nature. Romans 11, if you have your Bible, is a very instructive portion of Scripture for us. Very instructive. In fact, Romans 11, in fact, Romans 9, 10, and 11, I'm going to do a lot of teaching on that for those of you who are going to be able to go with us to Israel. I'll be talking a lot about Romans 9, 10, and 11. It's essentially about the salvation of the Jewish people towards the end of God's redemptive plan. In fact, it was a real privilege for me, and I don't know if she's here this morning, but Sharon, who's a Jewish woman, was, I had the privilege to baptize, and I've baptized quite a few Jewish people, and I've told them every time, and let me be clear, you've never been more Jewish than you are now. You're not, not, you're not, no, you're no longer some would say, well, they're no longer Jewish. No, they're more Jewish than they've ever been in their lives. And as she walked into that, she was, whether she was aware of it or not, fulfilling epically a portion of the biblical view of God's redemptive plan, that it was going to start with the Jews. For the most part, they were going to abandon Jesus as the Messiah as a nation. Not all Jews did, thank goodness, otherwise we wouldn't have the New Testament, right? Because they were written by Jews who loved Jesus. But on par, and you got to realize, even 1,500 years before the time of Jesus, God had already prophesied that they were going to reject, and then he was going to scatter them all over the face of the planet. And that has happened for, it happened for about 1,900 years until 1948. May 14th of 1948, some say 15, May 14th or 15th of 1948, Ben-Gurion signs into existence the nation of Israel, and he begins to regather the people of Israel and pour out his spirit on them. It's been slow, but we can see, and this church is a big part of this church's vision, is to see Jewish men and women in Israel and around the United States and world as well come to know Jesus. It's a big part of why we have church at the Red Door, so people can ask, what does that mean? Well, it comes out of the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 12, that God was going to spill the blood of his son so that our sins could be passed over because he was going to, wrath already existed on the earth because it was fallen. And so when I see that, that's very exciting for me. 
And we have uh, numerous Jewish people that are among us that are now believers and followers of Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. That's powerful. And it's an epic fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Well, Romans 11 is an outlay, starting in Romans 9 and then through 11, is a picture. And at one point, God says this, starting in verse 17. Romans 11, starting in verse 17. He says, but if some of the branches were broken off, well, what branches might those be? Well, he's talking about, he's given an analog, a metaphor, if you will, about a wild olive tree and a cultivated olive tree. And he said the cultivated olive tree has been God's people, Israel. Now you say, well, we're God's people. Of course we're God's people. But before the Messiah and before the nations were brought into the fold, Jesus, remember, said, I have sheep from another fold. Before we were brought in to understand that he was, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah that would be a light to the nations, prior to that, they were cultivated, but then they were broken off for their unbelief. And this is what he says. If some of the branches, speaking of Israel, were broken off, notice he said some of the branches, not all of Israel rejected Jesus. And you being a wild olive. Now, who's he writing to? He's writing to the church at Rome. So he's, he has the Gentiles in mind, the non-Jewish world. He says, if you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Now, we know all the way back to Isaiah, there's going to be this, this root that's going to come out of dry and parched land. It's going to come forth from Jesse. It was David's line. Jesus was born in J- David's line. Jesus is the branch. He's the root. He's the branch of which these then branches come off of. Other branches, but Jesus is that rich root. He said, you guys, don't be arrogant toward the branches, but if you're arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will then say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, that's true. You're quite right, for they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Don't be conceited, but fear. Fear? Look, I'm a wild olive branch. I was wild in a lot of other ways, too, but I was really wild. And I came off a very foreign branch to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I can just tell you that. I, 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 but I will tell you, as that wild olive branch, when I heard the gospel that there was a God of wrath and his wrath rested upon me, but it, it could be taken for me if I would just believe into Jesus. In that moment, I was grafted in. This is where in John 15 says, I am the what? Anybody remember? I'm the vine and you're the branch. And, and apart from me, you can't do anything. So I was grafted in like one of these branches into a root that was contrary to my nature, but I began to be fed by that very root, which was Jesus. But if they were broken off because of unbelief, I should also fear. Because if I begin to lose my faith, I too can be broken off. This is quite right. They were broken off for unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Don't be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either. Behold then, and this is important, the kindness, the love and the grace and the mercy, and the severity of God. This couplet is very important for us. 
See, when we look to God in our culture today, it's kind of like, well, it's just, it's a God of just making my dreams come true. You know, God in some ways becomes that. Whether our, whether our dreams are sanctified in his vision for us, whether we're walking in the fullness of how he fashioned us, we just send, tend to want to come to God and we want to say, well, that's God, right? He's just a big, benevolent, loving, unconditionally loving God that never really pays much attention. He just loves us. And that message gets preached often. And yet Paul's saying, no, 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 listen to me. Behold, look at this. Behold, look at it. Look at the kindness of God, of course, and the grace and the beauty. Look at it. But also look at the severity of God. Look at his holiness. Look at our inability to access him apart from faith in Jesus. Be aware. He says, if God did not spare the natural branches, he won't spare you. Behold, in the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness. In other words, if you live in his faith. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Now, people, you know, lose your salvation. I thought we were sealed by the Holy Spirit. This gets very complex, and I've told you before. You come to the text, and sometimes you look at this. Look, I, I, I'll be honest with you, and I was very clear with you before. I don't think there's a sin that can remove you, uh, a particular sin that can remove you from his grace, if, certainly if it's repented for, but the sin of unbelief, where you just stop believing in Jesus, as is evidenced by your life, the sin of unbelief breaks you off again, according to Paul. Not just a sin, but the continue hardening, and then eventually, I don't even believe that stuff anymore. Do you know how many people I run into every day in the ministry? I've got to tell you, especially with a missionary heart, I'm talking to people all the time. I cannot tell you how many people I've run into. I say, well, I tried that stuff for a while, believed for a while, went to church for a while, got involved a little while, became part of kind of that, but then I just don't believe that anymore. Now, I, I've got to be honest with you. When I look at that, it gets very complex because it becomes, you know, your choice versus sovereignty. And the, boy, all these things just explode theologically. But when I read this, it grabs me. Does it grab you? Behold, both the kindness and the severity of God. There's a couplet here. There's a duality. There's an inseparable duality in this. I've got to tell you, it's inseparable. God has to be. And you say, well, I don't, I don't want a God of wrath. Well, you're in a great place in, in the West in the 21st century because there are a lot of people that are preaching that there is no God of wrath. It is only a God of love. And I'll be honest with you. If you look historically at the church, the church made a bad misstep for many, many centuries because what it did is it took the truth and it didn't present it in love. In fact, at times it would kill those who didn't, you know, at various points, although sometimes they're over-exaggerated, these stories, but at various points, ostensibly, the church would go out and take the truth and not even ever talk about the kindness of God. It was always the severity of God, and it was, it was truth without love. And then it, it, more in our day, we, we, we don't live in that world. We live much more in a world where it's just the God of unconditional love for everybody. And we know John 3, 16, God, first God so loved the world, but is it unconditionally? Is it, is it not conditioned on your response to his grace and to faith and the cross? And so what we have to understand when we look at this, we have to say, look, God, I know that you love us. But I also know you're something that I cannot even remotely understand. 
I mean, I kind of think I get a picture of you, but I really don't fathom who you are. We do not, as I said last week, know who we are dealing with. How would we know that? Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, let me read. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. Now, does that define God? Absolutely. From my time from being part of a wild olive branch and emphasis on wild to being actually grafted into a cultivated olive tree took a lot of long suffering on God's part and love when I didn't deserve it. When I deserved his full wrath, he, in, he instead sent people into my life that loved me and continued to share the gospel and prayed for me. I'm very grateful for that because I know that came from God. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness and truth. Now, this is the important part of this. He's abounding in loving kindness, but he's also abounding in truth. And the truth is, if you don't know Jesus, you are a sinner. But you're a sinner even if you do know Jesus, and yet it's covered but you stand alone under the wrath of a holy and powerful God more than you can ever realize. I think sometimes we go along, you've seen that. I've seen it at various points. I remember being at a baseball game one time, and I looked up, and I watched, I watched this little two- or three-year-old, and she was, you know, those. it was, a, it was just a small park, like for youth baseball or something. And, you know, you've you got the little thing here, and then the, they're not backs to the seats anyway. They're more bleachers. They're bleachers. And she was walking up on this, and somehow she'd gotten outside the, the, the eye of her own mother, and she began to walk on this. And I'm like, it's only a matter of time. If she only knew the precarious situation she is, she's going to trip and fall and fall down to the bottom of that thing underneath the bleachers. There's no way she's going to be able to be able to keep her balance. And I could see it, and I immediately began to make my way towards that because I realized what was happening, and she fell before I could get there. Fortunately, she wasn't... She wasn't uh, profoundly injured but you can see that but she was blissfully unaware of how precarious her situation was as is every human being walking the planet that has negated the cross even if they might be talking about some loving God or some power out there or some higher power or something if they've negated the cross then they still stand under the severity of God out of necessity he goes on to say, he says, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity. That's the beauty and the mercy of God. Transgression and sin. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And who in here is not guilty? Well, we're only not guilty anymore because we've been ransomed by the cross. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Psalm 85, verse 8 I will hear what God will say. He will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in the land. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Again, a picture of the duality of God. Righteousness is there. Well, I'm not righteous without Christ. So he's got his, his necessary wrath poured out on the unrighteous. People say, well, why, why is that necessary? What do you think heaven's going to be? When you conceive of heaven, do you, have you ever really deeply thought about heaven? What's that environment going to look like? 
Are we going to have a political situation, something similar to what we do now? And just, you know, kind of think, do you, isn't it exhausting? Don't you feel your soul tormented day after day? Just turning on the news is exhausting. The hatred and the, the, the violence of language back and forth and back and forth. And yet we have relative peace in the United States unknown to most any civilization that's ever existed on the planet. I mean, America is one of the most peaceful in terms of just current war on our shores. Nobody's, uh, did you get up to concern this morning that you're going to drive here to church the red door and someone's going to slaughter you or a bomb is going to fall on you? Or I mean, we have our stuff, but relative peace? What's heaven going to look like? We're not going to have political parties anymore. There's going to be one rule. His name is Jesus, and he's going to do it out of perfect love. And we're going to have a new minds and new bodies. And we're going to be able to relate to each other, not based in a quid pro quo attitude, not based in anything other than just, I love you, and I feel that. And, and we're going to be driven by that. Not the hostility that exists in, among families and the hostility that among the Hatfields and the McCoys and all. I mean, and then political parties and ethnicities and races. and everything. How's that going to happen? Wrath has to be part of that. God has to set everything right for that to ever exist. If you think heaven is something that God needs to do, then his wrath is a necessary part of getting us from where we are now to where we will be one day living in the eternal realm with the creator of the universe where all things are right and there are no longer any tears. It's just hard to imagine. I can't even imagine that world. It's kind of a, a, maybe a feeling that you get maybe at the end of a Hollywood movie where all of a sudden everything's kind of set right, you know, and things are as they should be. But then deep down in the back of your mind, if you've walked this planet for a long, yeah, but then that marriage is, you know, the honeymoon period is going to be over after a while. And then it's going to go back to just normal reality. And, you know, and this is, but we, we, these moments, these moments in time where everything's set right and we're usually something had to happen for it to be set right. The bad guy had to be put in his place. Something in the narrative had to be set right. The antagonist had to be put in his place. And that essentially is a necessary part of God's love, isn't it? Isn't it? Righteousness and peace have kissed together. Where did that happen? It happened on the cross. God's mercy and love and compassion for humanity met and kissed with his mercy. He would never had to be double-minded. It was an inseparable part of who he was. Listen to Micah 7. It says, Nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. They will pour their, put their hand on their mouth and their ears will be deaf and they're going to lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth. This is a picture of God setting all things right. I don't like that. I don't like that Old Testament God, all that wrath stuff. I don't like all that stuff. Trust me, if you don't understand that, you won't understand his holiness and you will never fully embrace the cross. How many people are sitting in churches all over the country and all over the world on a Sunday like today and they have a general idea of coming to God because they want to be blessed, but they've never really understood the cross. They've never really understood the magnitude of what Jesus went through. As we'll see next week, he became a curse. God couldn't even continue to look at him. God turned his back. Do you feel that in your worship this morning? Or does it just feel like, I don't know, you know, there's a few songs and we'll hear something and we'll get out of here. 
Do you feel that magnitude of who Jesus is and what he's done for us? It says, they will come trembling out of their fortresses to the Lord our God. They will come in dread and they will be afraid of you. This is the severity of God. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He doesn't retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. What is God love? Love. God loves unchanging love. He loves to be long-suffering and merciful. He wa- he's waiting for you. He will again have compassion on us and he will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our fathers, forefathers from the days of old. So Lord, I know you're going to come in wrath, but I'm just trusting in your kindness. So I'm looking at both. I have them both indelibly imprinted on my mind. We don't know who we're dealing with. And by the same token, I I trust that you're loving and I can see, I can see your ultimate love for humanity, especially now. Remember, these Old Testament prophets, Micah's writing some 700 years about the time of Isaiah as well. He, they are looking forward to the cross and God pouring out his infinite love. And there was going to be the necessity of a substitution so that God would be satisfied. Now, we're going to go back and look at those words because that's important. You say, Satisfied. That's a very important understanding theologically for us to understand. Now, you say, Jeff, why are you going into this? Why, is, why the depth of going into this? So you can have your mooring so strongly anchored in proper ability theologically to deal with life. It's too easy to turn on the TV and just see some God of just, you know, blessing and never the cross preached ever. It's too easy to happen in our culture, and it's dangerous. Let me say that again. It's radically dangerous to observe the kindness of God and not simultaneously understand his holiness and therefore the necessity of his severity. Habakkuk 3 verse 2. Lord, I've heard the report about you and I fear. Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. Lord, in wrath... Remember mercy. Lord, I've heard, I've heard the report about you, and it terrifies me. I finally realize who I'm dealing with here. But Lord, in your wrath, which is a necessary component of who you are and your godliness and your other thanliness, I should say, Lord, but I, do re- I, I recognize it, and it's terrifying to me. Lord, would you remember mercy? And then Jesus says yes, and God says yes, here's the cross, where righteousness and peace meet and kiss. Now we can think about then John 1.14 as well. Remember the couplets describing in just one short span both the reality of God's power and holiness and yet the reality of his, his necessary wrath. And the word became flesh and dwelled among men. Well, we love that. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What's the truth about us as a world? We're in rebellion. We're in open rebellion to God. That's the truth. Jesus came speaking truth, and sometimes he was hard. 
really hard. You remember, for instance, I, it's a nice way to think about it. Romans eleven twenty two, what we saw, behold both the kindness and severity of God. Flip that in Matthew twenty two eleven. So you can always couple these in your own mind. Okay, so Romans eleven twenty two is behold both the kindness and severity of God, and then Matthew twenty two eleven. Just flip them and go to Matthew twenty two eleven, and it's a story of where there's a man who's throwing a great wedding feast. And he goes out and he invites everybody to his wedding feast and people stream in. And then the head of the wedding party. See, back in the old days, by the way, when you would come to a wedding, they would very often provide for you wedding clothes. I know that sounds odd. You say, well, I don't want to wear their clothes. I have a, a nice little uh, Armani thing that I just bought, you know, a uh, dress that I bought last week. And I want to wear that. He said, no, no, you needed to wear the wedding clothes. It was part of your understanding of and your uh, walking into the wedding. You need to be clothed in wedding clothes. Now, the Bible is full of language. Uh, starting all the way back with Zechariah and Psalm 85, many other places that talk about being clothed in the righteousness of God. Being and then we see uh, Je uh, Joshua, who was the high priest in Zechariah 3, and he was there, and everything he had was dirty and filthy. And they said, put a clean turban on him and put clean uh, clothes on him, and I, and I will forgive their iniquity in one day. It's a beautiful prophecy, uh, hundreds of years in advance of the cross. Beautiful. Well, the, the wedding, the guy who's hosting the wedding comes in and says, well, what are you doing here in those clothes? And then he says, well, throw them outside, close the doors where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. How are you clothed? Well, that's a good question to ask this morning, isn't it? If we stand under the wrath of God, what is it that allows us to be clothed in festal wedding clothes and enter into a place where God comes over and says, well, I'm glad that you're here. Welcome to the wedding celebration. As opposed to where are your wedding clothes? Cast them out where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, boy, that's a good, that's something you don't hear on TV a lot, do you? You know, you know where they're trying to get, look, it's, it's behold, again, the kindness and severity of God. This G Jesus is teaching us. Why is he doing that? Because he loves us and he came in grace and truth. Why did he tell that parable? Because that is a, an accurate representation of the reality of our separation from a holy God and you need wedding clothes on. So Jesus didn't just come in grace. Hey, your father's in love with you again. Now, just He wants to help you lead your life and whatever you're doing, he's just going to help you with it. No, he also came to say, you do understand that you're radically separated from my father. He says, I see and I do and I know exactly the words of my father, but you don't see it and you can't even see it. And then he would hearken back to the old prophets, many times Isaiah. They have ears to hear, but they can't hear. They have eyes to see, but they can't see. You don't recognize the situation in which you're in. The Son of Man came for those who are sick and he called us all sick in open rebellion. Now, we don't hear sometimes that, but God... Jesus said, he took on flesh, he came and dwelled among us, and what? We beheld him in grace and truth, kindness and severity, and it should grab us. Now, what I'd like to do is, over these next few minutes before we proceed, uh, J.I. Packer said something profound, one of the great theologians of old. He says, God's wrath is this, it's, it's right and it's a necessary reaction to objective moral evil. 
Let me say that again. God, listen, his wrath is a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. Now, we've been, I've been trying to make that case, but you need to note the theologians, the greatest down through the centuries said, look, it is a necessary part of his character. Then when we talk about this, and this is a hard one to talk about because we're talking about satisfaction, that God needs satisfaction. Not some moral, tyrannical satisfaction that we get from giving revenge or seeing someone fail that we hate. No, that's not the kind of thing we're talking about. Listen to what John Stott again says. By the way, last week, unfortunately, did not know whether he'd passed. He passed, I talked to the Ames up in Seattle, and he said he'd passed about five years ago. They said under his teaching in London. But again, one of the great theologians of of our modern generation, for sure, no question. Listen to what he says. This is a little complex, but please bear with me because these are important things to get in our soul. Get this. To say that he, God, must satisfy himself means that he must be himself and act according to the perfection of his nature or name. Now, we said this last week, if you'll remember, We said, there's no way. I mean, would you consider me a righteous father if I had no wrath or indignation towards someone who broke into my house and would openly abuse my wife and girls and family? Would you see that as a loving father? We can't have any wrath. Can't have any indignation. Can't have, and remember what wrath is, we defined it as a violent emotional response to things not being right. And if as a father, for the brief years that we have to, to be able to, and now they're over. I mean, Savannah turned 20 years old yesterday. I mean, she's going to go out and she'll have the same task in front of her. But for those few years that I have to protect and to make sure that things are right and they're, they have an atmosphere of love that they're able to grow up into. And I said, oh, you know, well, I'm not a dad of wrath. I'm not a dad who violently has an emotional response to things not being right. And, and I would just open myself. You would be so offended by that. You would say, you're the worst father. A God with no wrath is a God that would be the worst of all gods. You need to understand that. I don't like a God of wrath. You can't, if you, the, your God that you may have created in your own mind that is not a God of wrath is no God at all. He goes on to say, the necessity of satisfaction for God, therefore, is not found in anything outside himself, but within himself, in his own immutable character. It's an inherent or intrinsic necessity. The law to which he must conform, which he must satisfy, is the law of Not externally the Mosaic law. It's the law of his own being. It's who he is by nature. He wants there to be parity and righteousness and love and safety and all those things that this world in rebellion cannot provide for us. It goes on to say, if evil did not provoke him to anger, he would forfeit our respect for he would no longer be God. You do understand that. That's important that we get this down in our soul. And is, is he right in this? I mean, is he the one that should have the... The Bible says that he's the judge. He's, he is God. Psalm 51 verse 4, listen to David. 
after his great fall and his sin with Bathsheba and then the murder of Uriah, as we've been looking at, listen to what he says. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, God, so that you are justified when you speak and you are blameless when you judge. Let me just tell you, does God, I mean, who, who does he think he is? He's God. It's his very character. And he's justified and he's blameless when he judges. And when he judges, there has to be a necessary consequence, necessarily. Basically, three stages in God's wrath, okay? First of all, the Bible, and I won't go into all the scriptures that support this, but if you want to do a word study, you can. God is provoked to jealousy. Why? Because he's got a big ego and he needs everybody to bow to him, no? Let me tell you something. He's provoked just as I would be provoked as a father if someone was trying to abuse my kids or I would be provoked by any injustice. In our day and in our time, people are less and less provoked by hostility towards God and others. They just are. So first, he becomes provoked. It's just his emotional response to all these death choices that people are making because he can see the natural outcome. Every time you make a death choice... He sees it and he's provoked. It brings, brings provocation in his own heart. And because he's provoked, eventually, he, the Bible will use this language all the time. And again, some of this is uh, what people call anthropomorphism. We have to you know, give these emotional responses that are somewhat human. He said then he burns and he's not easily quenched. This, and that's why we get all this fire imagery that we have with God. First he's provoked and then he burns. And then lastly, in the third stage, he unleashes it. And he spins his wrath. He spins it all until it's completely gone on the necessary other end of the stick. The person who's, or the people who are causing this. We see this over and over with Israel. We'll see it in the book of Habakkuk. He's prophesying, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. They're a fierce and impetuous people, and they are going to come in, and they are going to waylay you. And he's going to spend his wrath. And you say, well, God of wrath, I don't like all that stuff. It's a necessary part of who he is. And it's also a demonstration of how much he loves you, believe it or not. John says the threefold vocabulary vividly portrays God's judgment as arising from in him, out of his holy character, and it's wholly consonant with it, and therefore, it's inevitable. You can't deal with a holy God like this and not have the eventual inevitability that he's going to pour out his wrath. There is, it's absolutely inseparable. Are you with me? Is this not awesome? <laughs> Do we need to stop and maybe take a seventh inning stretch here, you know, and maybe get a few hot dogs down here and everything? This is tough, I know, trust me, I recognize it. But if you will allow me to continue to lay this foundation, please, I'm just, I'm begging you. Live streamers, I'm begging you, don't get up and go get something to eat in the kitchen right now. I'm begging you, if you will allow me to lay the foundation, why? Just because I have a, I have a bent on this and I just want to make everybody feel miserable? No, so that you can be so grounded in the Scripture you will fall in love with Jesus more than you ever have. Let me say that again. Do you, I've said it, but I'm going to say it again. I'm going to keep saying it. Once you understand this, you will understand the depths of God's 
infinite love. And when we get to the cross and next, next year when we have our sunrise, you know, Easter, and when we come together, you're going wor- to begin to worship in a way you never have. And guess what? Paradoxically, it's going to make you more joyful because you're going to worship like you never have. So what about God's holiness in this last few minutes? I just want to take you to one, and then we'll pick it up next week. I want to take you to one place in the text. It's Isaiah 6. Many of you will know it well. This is an encounter that a very relatively righteous man, okay? So this is Isaiah. And we, we went in early in this church, formation of the church. I took you to Isaiah 6 at one point in the context of another series that we were doing. But I will tell you this, Isaiah ver- chapter 6 is profound. It gives us insight into who we're dealing with. So if you take Isaiah on the grand, you know, scale of things, you'd say, well, Isaiah is pretty impressive. I mean, he wrote, he didn't write in chapter and verse, obviously, but we now attribute 66 chapters to the Bible, specifically to Isaiah. 66 chapters. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, the only thing that they found, they found the entirety of the book of Isaiah completely down to the last word in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which gave us an extant manuscript that predated the last thing. It was the Aleppo Codex or something, some 800 to 1,000 years. It was unbelievable. So Isaiah did say these things. Isaiah is now one of the major prophets, an extraordinary insight into the plans of God. He wrote Isaiah 53, which has led more Jewish people especially, but many uh, Gentiles as well, to Jesus. Uh, and absolutely, he, he had the vision of Jesus going to the cross and the lamb led to slaughter and sprinkling the nations. I mean, Isaiah is a righteous man relative to the rest of the people on the planet. Would you agree? And this is his response. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, and this is where we'll close, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. What did he see? Is this a vision? Is he actually in heaven? I don't know. Can't tell you. Feels like an absolute real thing happened here, but I don't really know. It's kind of like Paul said. He said when, probably when he was in Arabia, because he went away into Arabia for a, quite a significant period of time, maybe even all the way back to Sinai. Who knows? And after he had had his vision, because he, he was just completely thrown, you know, thrown off the horse on the road to Damascus, and he goes back, and he said, and I was taken into the third heaven. I don't know whether it was in my body or it was in another body. I have no idea whether it was a vision or actually happened. Isaiah, I don't know. I cannot say, but I will tell you this. Listen. I saw the throne, Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy. Again, what does holy mean? Other than Lee. He's, this is so different. This is so different than anything we're... Holy, 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 repeated three times, is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out. Can you imagine? Wish we'd have a little earthquake right now. It'd help help with the thing. I couldn't orchestrate that right now. (laughs) Niagara Falls, something, you know, where it's just overwhelming. And you can imagine Isaiah 
started out, oh, I had a vision, I had a vision, oh my God, I had a vision, a holy, holy, and then the foundations begin to tremble. He says that the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, hey God, you know, I've, I've been asking, praying for this a long time, can you not, I need some money, man, I need to win the lotto, can you not help me with this? What's his response? Well, I finally got in front of Santa Claus, and I have this long list. Can I not come sit up on your lap? Lord, just let me sit on your lap for a minute. I got this list. Where's my list? Mom, hey, Mom, where's my list? You didn't see that at all. I mean, he's finally got his chance. He's, he's in the presence. I mean, the throne and the smoke and the holy, and everything's trembling. And, and now he's got his chance to ask. What does he do? Woe is me. I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. See, here's arguably the most righteous man on the planet at the time. I mean, Israel's in somewhat chaos. I mean, there's lack of leadership. Isaiah rises up and has to talk about, you know, God's going to come against our people and, you know, come let us reason together. He's reaching out to them and also talking about the future and the judgment, the inevitability of God's judgment unless they turn. And I mean, he's a righteous guy. He's on God's side, if anybody's on God's side. But here it is. And all he can see is truth. I may be righteous relative to my friends, but I am a man of unclean lips. Now, why did he say that? Proverbs is pretty clear. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. What he was saying, really, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. But if you put that together, we know that it's out of the heart the mouth speaks. What he's saying is, my heart is wicked. Because all of a sudden, I see you as you are. I am I am just, I am overwhelmed by this. The last thing in the world is I'm going to come flippantly before the Lord and just ask Him for anything that my heart so desires. Nothing wrong with going to the Lord and talking to Him about your needs. Don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying there's not intimacy here. But it has to be... The foundations have to be laid in this picture. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. And, and, and not only that, everybody I'm around is in the same predicament. I live among the people of unclean lips. For why? Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away from you. Your sin is forgiven. Now, this is clearly a picture of the new covenant, the new birth. It's an advanced picture of what would happen to us. We can be made clean. Our lips can be touched. And this word is fiery sometimes. But when it touches our lips, and it's just, again, the lips are a picture and an effect, a consequence of the condition of our heart. And so when we see Ezekiel say, I'm going to give them a new spirit, give them a new heart, I'm going to pour out my spirit, I'm going to pour clean water on them. All the prophets are seeing the same thing. There is a way out from underneath the foreboding wrath of a very holy God. He goes on to say, listen. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. 
I realize your holiness. I realize I'm unclean, but you've now made me clean. Now turn me back around and send me into that hurting world. For him, it was the nation of Israel. For us, it's our neighbors. It's the Coachella Valley. It's Seattle, Denver, Chicago, Portland, Dallas, where all, all, many of our family is during this time of year. Wherever it is, send me. That cry, send me. I've been made clean. Now I get it. I get it who people are dealing with. Let me just tell you something. If at your core you don't have the, the real need or desire to be part of a missional community, which is advancing the gospel in the earth, if there's nothing in you that burns in that way, can I say, rather than berate you and say, you should be more evangelistic, you should care more, can I just tell you, you need a vision of what Isaiah got. You need a vision of God's holiness. And when you get a vision of God's holiness, you'll recognize that his wrath is poured out already. Not poured out, but his wrath is on those who have chosen to reject the cross. And your whole life will become consumed. Send me. Send me. Send me. My money, my time, my energy, send me. I don't care where it is. I care because now I see my life and stark relief to your holiness and I cannot stand before you, but with the cross, I can come directly into your presence because you've opened up the Holy of Holies for me. Are you with me? If you struggle with even the idea of taking the gospel to the Coachella Valley, you'll always be somewhat uncomfortable at church at the Red Door. I'll just tell you, we're, it's a community. We are, in our very essence, a missional community. It's the vision of this church. But you've got to see who God is. Send me. And he said, all right, go. And that's exactly where Jesus left his disciples. Go into all the world. Proclaim the gospel. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Paul and I had the privilege of baptizing four precious women, Stephanie and Sharon and Mary, and then, and then a gal who just came at the last minute. She was there not planning to get baptized. And she was so overcome by this that she just went full clothed and straight into the pool. So I was baptized 40 years ago, but I feel like I've turned my back on God. I've run the other way, and I want to I I do this all over again. That's awesome. That's awesome. So in closing, listen to what he says. He says, keep on listening, but they don't perceive. This people, they keep on looking, but they, they don't understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And then I said, how long, Lord? And notice his wrath. This is going to have to come on to the nation of Israel. And it did. Now, this came on, Isaiah is preaching at this particular point. It's not, we don't know exactly when this was written, but we know that the Assyrians would come in and waylay the 10 northern tribes. Another 150, almost 200 years, 150 years later, the Babylonians would come in and waylay. But can I tell you, this is also the case with Jesus. He knew the impending judgment. He says every, not a stone's going to be left unturned. He knew that the Romans were going to come in under Tiberius and completely wipe out his people again in wrath in love and in wrath severity and kindness it's God it's God it's who you're dealing with and he says until cities are devastated and without inhabitant houses are without people and land is utterly desolate <laughs> Isaiah must be going oh it's gonna be great can't wait 
Go out and tell this people. Preach the wrath. See, Isaiah was commissioned. And what was he commissioned? Part of his commission was go, you tell them this. There's coming a day where cities are going to be devastated. A rubble heap. Houses are going to be without people. And the land is going to be utterly desolate. Part of my task and anybody else who will ever stand in this pulpit, not every week, but part of our task is to give you a balanced view of the word of God. To give you a picture of his severity and his kindness. And if I don't do that, I am failing you because you will never fall in love with Jesus like he intends you to fall in love. You will never cling to the old rugged cross, not like he wants you to. The Lord has removed men far away and forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet, look at this, there will be a tenth portion in it and it will be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is filled. The holy seed is its stump. But even in my wrath, I'm going to be remembering mercy. So is this offensive to you? I'm going to show you some things next week. We're going to go more deeply into this. I'm going to say, what, is, what actually is a curse? Sounds like witch doctor stuff, right? Kind of magic and thing. That's how the curse, the word curse has taken on a very different uh, definition in our day. It's more like, you know, like I said, some kind of, you know, occultic practice or, you know, little bobby pins or not bobby pins, but little pins that you stick in a doll, you know, curse you, curse you. But the Bible does talk about curse, and we're going to look at the radical idea that though we were under a curse, for those of you who've loved Jesus, God actually cursed. R.C. Sproul said it this way, and forgive the language, but I'm just quoting one of the great theologians who died a couple of years ago who I love dearly and have learned a lot from. He's, it's as if God was saying, now you're going to be offended by this, but I'm just telling you from R.C. Sproul, so you can blame it on R.C., God turns away from Jesus on the cross because he becomes our curse. And R.C. puts it this way, as if God was saying, God damn you. Because that's what it is, to be damned to Jesus because he took the weight of our sin upon himself. The full wrath, every bit of it. How can, we, how can we not worship? How can we not be a community that bows? How can we? It's impossible. Stacy, if you don't want to do this, could you lead us in amazing grace? Just at least one stanza? Is that possible? Without music or anything? Completely unplanned? If, you, if you're uncomfortable doing that? We need this song right now, don't we? <clears throat> And then I'll pray. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now. Was blind, but now I see. It's beautiful. Thank you, sweetheart.
Father, we give this day to you. And there may be someone here or someone on live stream, someone, Lord, that just needs to say, Father, I I don't know that I ever really fully recognized who I'm dealing with. And that your wrath must inevitably fall on me. If that's you and you want to pray with somebody, we're going to have some people to pray with you down to my lower right. If you're at home, you can just pray. You can just say, Lord, forgive me. I choose to follow Jesus. I'm going to give my life to the creator of the universe. I'm not going to use you just as a God of heavenly benefits. But Father, I am going to behold both your gracious kindness demonstrated so perfectly on the cross and the necessary severity of who you are because you will one day set all things right. So Lord, will you forgive me for my sin? Will you lead me into all righteousness through your Holy Spirit? Lord, I want to get baptized. I want to follow you. I want to live for your kingdom. And then ultimately one day, Lord, would you send me back out into a harsh and hurting world? In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we love you, Church at the Red Door. I will, we will be with you again next week. We're going to continue this, and I think even give you more clarity on this topic.